Hello, everyone. We are back. I am back. All of us are back for Talk Racing to Me with Naomi Show Twenty Three. A little break of a week, trying to sort my life out, uh, navigate my workload. Now all is going great here, and as this show drops, it is the first day of the Twenty Twenty Pimlico Meet. Are we multiple months late? Absolutely. Is Preakness 145 being run on October 3rd? Correct again. And because of that, I have the one and only voice of Maryland Racing, long-standing racetrack announcer Dave Rotman joining me to chat everything Preakness, Pimlico, and his own history within the sport. He will be calling his 30th Preakness this year. From the seniors to the younger racing ranks, I am so happy to introduce and hype up my fellow Godolphin Flying Start graduate, Phil Antonacci, to the listeners. He will be setting up training this winter at Payson Park, and I couldn't be more excited for him. To close off the show, I have Canadian Hall of Fame trainer Josie Carroll chatting about her incredible exact finish in this year's Queen Plate with Mighty Heart and Belichick. She's won this race two times prior with her 2006 victory, making her the first ever female trainer to win the historic event. A remarkable and outstanding trainer. It was quite an honor to have a chat with her. We will start with the first guest of this week's show. Dave Rotman started calling the Maryland Circuit in 1991 and hence has been the longest consecutive Preakness caller ever. Dave, it's so wonderful to have you join me here. I'd love to take you back to the start. How and where did the racing bug grab a hold of you? I owe uh, my... uh, Thanks for having me on, by the way. Uh, (laughs) I owe my uh, start in racing to my father, who who was basically just a $2, $5 kind of better. Uh, he loved to go to the races and uh, he loved to take my mom to the races and on the weekends. That's back in the day when people would go to the clubhouse and dress up and have dinner. <laughs> and it was kind of a weekend thing for them. But uh, uh, he he he's the one that brought me to the track for the first time um, in New Orleans at the fairgrounds and the little bread and butter track named Jefferson Downs outside of New Orleans. Those were the two main track so mm, he'd take me to the races and give me a couple of bucks to play and that's when I got hooked and actually going to the races and uh seeing the horses wagering a little bit uh having fun you know it was a great a great escape um he'd never really lose a lot of money or win a lot of money you know he'd always kind of keep his uh his profits and losses on the back of the program and if we won at the end of the day, of course, we'd treat ourselves to a nice dinner. If not, we'd treat ourselves to a nice dinner anyway. So, uh, yeah, my, my dad introduced me to the races um, probably around eight, nine, ten years old, some somewhere in that in that um, in that age of my life. At one point, uh, he took me to to the races, but I couldn't get in. I was too young, especially in my younger days. So he quickly leave me in the car back when you could leave a child in the car, <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> make his bets and come back. And I would just kind of watch the horses uh, through, through the fence. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, those are the good old days. Well, those Saturdays, that sounds like a win-win situation to me. What was it, what was it that caught your, your fancy really the the horses itself or the gambling aspect, or even just the whole culture Mm. that everyone came together for a day out and it was a thing. I I think at first, at first, obviously it's, oh, I can bet $2 and I've won four. That's great. (laughs) You know, uh, but thinking back on it, it's the whole atmosphere uh, of the track, um, the people, uh, meeting different people from all walks of life, you know, um, of all income levels. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, being near the horses, going down to the paddock and watching the riders get a leg up, uh, watching the horses warm up a little bit. And so that, you know, I, I got a real appreciation for that. And, you know, in, in this pandemic times here, I I hope they don't last much longer because I have a feeling that we're losing a lot of um, maybe not to switch subjects. But I think I think we're losing a, a lot of uh, racing fans to be, <laughs> you know, yeah. by their parents and their aunts and their uncles and their their grandparents taking them to the races maybe just once and them getting the, the feel of what it's like to be around the racetrack. So it was a little bit of everything. I think at first it was definitely the gambling aspect of it. But as I got older, um, started to realize, oh, there, there's much more to it than that. You're talking about the whole experience and yeah. indeed going into the, the fact that with the pandemic, people can't attend the races and get hooked like that. And Do you feel mm-hmm. that we might end up having a, a generation of at least sort of age this year that we might miss out on because it feels like we're losing a year. Well, yeah, it feels like it now, but I was just mentioning this to someone the other day. I'm, I'm hoping when this is all over and done and there's a vaccine or, uh, you know, and we're out to the other side of the clouds that maybe uh, racing really has an opportunity to, um, to bring people back to the track and kind of start over, you know, um, and maybe introduce them to the fact that uh, these are living, breathing animals and they require a lot of uh, attention and care. And, you know, we give it to them. And, uh, you know, not a, it's not just a game of, of chance and gambling um, that that maybe people will uh, embrace the fact that they can go to places um and and be social <laughs> again yeah i i for one definitely miss the social aspect but i i love the point you make about connecting the public as well as the younger generation with these animals who are magnificent yeah. uh very kind not all of the racehorses are but the majority are <laughs> and yeah. and really show them how much the you know mm. the staff care for them and how much is involved in that it isn't just you know a game of speed and and money like some people sometimes you know might portray it i'm not saying that's the racing industry itself but outside criticism can be that oh you know the, are the horses even cared for is it just a, a gambling game but instead show them that other side yeah, show them show them what it's like to be there in the mornings. You know, maybe start some programs to to really introduce people to to the game from from that aspect. Which you know, back in back in the day, you know, I, I worked at Louisiana Downs for several years. You know, we had a morning show, AM trackside, and people would come out and and watch the horses. And you know, I'm 
maybe everything old will be new again. Uh, and, and tracks can kind of embrace that. I don't know if, if people are, you know, they where they were in the seventies or the eighties <laughs> and will, will attend that kind of a thing. But, uh, I think that once people have been in, um, used to an indoor lifestyle for so long and, uh, uh that maybe, maybe it, there's a chance at certain tracks to, uh, to bring that, to bring that back, to bring that feeling back. But I mean, yeah, my, I mean, my dad took me to the track, you know, as a gambler, as a fan, I, be, I got hooked on racing and then, um, w- wanted to be in radio all along throughout high school, pretty much, uh, my latter years in high school, I wanted to, to be on the radio and talk for a living and be a DJ and play records and, you know, uh, you know, and, um, be just, just be on the radio and have a good time. So, you know, I grabbed, gravitated right from high school into radio and uh, did that for several years and then kind of got back to the racetrack um, after a few years in radio and heard that there was an announcing position open at uh, Jefferson Downs. And uh, Rick Mocklin, who was the announcer at the time, let me uh, settle up on the roof with a tape recorder with the pigeons. And uh, it was just us and them <laughs> and the horses. And he let me practice a little bit. And uh, so that's where I called my first races on the roof to nobody but a couple of pigeons. And uh, he finally put me in the booth one night. And that's how I got into actually calling races back in 1981. Well, what a wonderful learning experience starting out with someone like that and starting out on the roof. I mean, you don't need an mm-hmm. audience to practice, right? Uh, yeah, and at the time I was still playing more than uh, thinking of it as a, as a profession. So it was more like they're off, and I'd check my tickets to see where the four and the seven and the eight were. <laughs> um, and you know there wasn't anything serious, but eventually did a did a couple of calls, and he said, "Oh, you're good enough to get in there." And in the mornings during that period, I worked on the backstretch with um, with horses, hot walking. Um, you know, just being around them. So it was a morning and evening kind of a, a job for me mm, at the time. So I got a, a best of both worlds. That's, and that's really where I, uh, got to understand the basics of, you know, all the work that went into preparing a horse, um, to get them ready for the races. I, I do believe it's imperative to know at least the basics of these different aspects that go into preparing yeah. racehorse and getting them to the race course. So that's wonderful that you have that background. Uh, of course, I come from an exercise yeah. riding background and the uh, break, breaking, educating yearlings are trying stay away from the breaking term because it doesn't <laughs> sound nice because we're not breaking them, we're teaching them. But getting back to you mentioning the little, you know, little flutter aspect, the gambling aspect, do you still sometimes have a little bet or now that you've been doing it for so many decades, you know, you're just focused on the announcing side of it? Uh, No, I do do not. I do not. Contrary to what some people believe, (laughs) do not bet on races that I call. So, uh, yeah, do I do I do I gamble here and there? Yeah, I do. I still like to play races and uh but I, I don't bet races I call because there's just too much of a conflict of interest. I don't think it would be a fair call. Uh, or there are many times when I, after the race is over, I say, oh, you know, I should have bet that horse. But <laughs> I think that's so, a very common saying yeah. after the race is over. <laughs> yeah. 
I should have bet that horse. I hear that a lot too from people who, who play every race. But uh, um, yeah, I, I still I still love to handicap, and I still like to watch racing from around the country, and I still watch a lot of racing on my off days, um, and still play here and there different tracks, and, uh, and mostly sometimes pick fours. Um, you know, a few win bets here and there. Not as much as I used to, but certainly still involved. Well, it's always fun to keep your uh, to keep your eye on the prize and to stay stay with yeah. the you know some of the other aspects that the racing industry has to offer. And going back to the reason I'm having you on my show is that you are one of the longest standing race callers to have called the Preakness in consecutive years. How many Preaknesses have you called now? Mm-hmm. Uh, this year will be 30. <laughs> Hard to believe. Oh, uh, yeah, Ni- 1991 was Hansel, uh, and that was my first Preakness. So this will be Preakness number 30, if my math is correct. Oh, uh, have you? So have you ever missed one? Have I missed a Preakness yeah. in that whole? Uh, no, I've called every uh, every every Preakness since 91 here. That's a for, for the for the local audience. Yeah, mm-hmm. and simul- after. Three decades. Do you still get excited to call that race? Uh, excited and and believe it or not, still still a little bit nervous. Of course, you know because there's no there's no rewind button, there's no edit button, there's no delete button. So you're always fearful that you're going to call the wrong horse or say the wrong thing or miss something, which uh, which can happen in in any race. Um, so um, yeah, there and and the excitement of fact that it's a triple crown race it's uh, maryland's a signature race um it's being watched uh, worldwide um so yeah i mean ex- excited uh, to call it uh but you know you really you put your you know your game face on uh when necessary um and uh this year will be a little bit different uh without a uh, hundred thousand people and a lot of noise, especially when they're off. You know, you could usually hear the roar of the crowd come bounding through the window, and you know, and actually feel it like a wave. But uh, but this year um, it'll be there. But I've had a little bit of practice with <laughs> with with, with uh, no fan racing at Laurel, and it, it's been it's been you know I, I just keep thinking about what it's going to be like um, you know uh, on Preakness Day without uh, the infield crowd, the constant buzz of a noise, the music in the background, the bass, um, the cheers that are up here and there for whatever various reasons. Um, all of that I can hear at Pimlico because I could just slide that window open and, and hear what's going on. Even though I'm six stories up and isolated, you can still hear quite a bit. I can imagine. Well, yeah, this year, unfortunately, not the infield crowd but still a mm-hmm. very good field coming up and looking back at all those preaknesses that you've called um i wanted to ask you what your favorite is but i i'm assuming that there's a few that will always yeah. hold a special place in your memory well uh i mean i think i think 1997 with silver charm and captain bodget and freehouse all on the line together um would probably still rank in the top top three, but uh, you know the the longer you're here, the more the list <laughs> the longer the list uh, grows. And the reason for that race is just the fact that it was a beautiful, a perfect day. 
and uh, it was the closest finish since the 1930s. Uh, local horse, Captain Bodget, uh, was in the race that a lot of local fans were cheering for, and uh, there were several points in the race where it looked like just about anybody could win, Captain Bodget making a big move around the final turn, the quarter pole, um, Silver Charm, the great Freehouse digging down, and, and they all hit the line together uh, right at the finish. It was a very sunny day, and the shadow of the grandstand uh, met the uh, bright sunshine of, of a setting sun right at the finish line, and all three horses were right there. Uh, noses apart in a, in a three-way dramatic finish um, it's, that will be hard to duplicate. So as far as finishes go, that was certainly um, one that will probably rank always in, in my top three. Um, I mean, uh, Smarty Jones winning by a record margin was another Preakness that was very uh, memorable because of the, the large crowd from Philadelphia and Pennsylvania that came down to cheer him on. That was quite a raucous party in the after barn, uh, in the after, uh, the after party of the barn area for that. Um, a fleet Alex, obviously, uh, with, uh, the athleticism of not only a fleet Alex, but Jeremy Rose, um, probably, you know, one of the, one of the more remarkable comebacks, um, uh, of a horse that I've ever seen. And not only did he come back to win, but he drew off to win. So um, a fleet Alex Preakness, I don't know if I'm leaving anything out. I mean, to see a Philly win the Preakness, uh, uh, obviously of, of historic importance to Rachel Alexandra, uh, that would be um, certainly in the, in the top five. I mean, I could go on and on. There were just uh, so many, so many memorable uh, runs. Well, going back to that, Silver Charm with the really close finish. Uh, as an announcer, at that point, do you try to call the finish or what do you do? You just go photo finish and, and sort of wait for how it comes out? Um, I don't know if uh, there was ever a definitive call at, at the line. Uh, I, just, I do remember saying in a Preakness, we will remember, you know, and emphasizing that. Uh, because, well, not only in that race, but touch gold, uh, a very important point there was touch gold stumbled at the start um, and pretty much lost all chance, yet made a remarkable recovery uh, to get into contention. So that was the reason for that. Now, um, you know, you always hate to, to call a wrong photo finish. I mean, it was... Uh, it, it wasn't. It really wasn't uh, that close. It wasn't like Sunday Silence and Easy Goer, where I think uh, Trevor Denman had one of the best and classic calls of all time. And I remember I've asked him. I asked him years later about that race, and uh, before I before I said anything, he says, "If you're asking whether I guess, the answer is no." <laughs> On the photo finish. I, I did say I was, I was looking at the transcript a friend of mine had given me of that in a, in a frame. I said could be Silver Charm. I said could be Silver Charm, Freehouse, Captain Bodget, and a Preakness we will remember. So that was that was my call, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, in calling Silver Charm, but it wasn't like a Silver Charm has won it kind of a thing because I wanted to emphasize the fact that uh, you know 
um, that there were multiple things going on in the race, and it was a, a preakness uh, for the ages, really. You mentioned Rachel Alexandra as well. How special was that? Yeah, I mean, the fact that 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 of you know very few fillies are running the race. I mean, it. it I do remember her down the backstretch going so easily, so comfortable with her ears twitching around. And I said, you know, you're thinking to yourself midway through the call, um, wow, <laughs> she's going to win this race. She's going to, although you don't want to say that. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, a, that was a special performance. And of course, I, I could not ask about the two triple crown winners, the fact that you've called right. the middle yeah. duel for both American Pharaoh and justify. Right. I mean, well, what yeah, does that mean, mean to you? Um, both of those races, um, um, both of those races, um, interestingly enough, were affected by the weather. <laughs> so they were, they were, they were, um, they were they're very interesting in that the that Pharaoh uh, there was a tremendous thunderstorm uh, that that just burst upon Pimlico right as the horses were leaving the turf course to come onto the track. Uh, tremendous storm. Uh, it was raining so hard that you couldn't see the post parade, and by the time the post parade was done, I couldn't see the starting gate. Oh God! Um, and then the horses galloped off, and I said, "Oh, this is great! Um, <laughs> this is great!" And I started to write things down. Well, what, what, you know, what am I going to say? What am I going to say if, if, if it's still raining like this? You know, um, what if I can't see? I'm going to, how am I going to fill the time? <laughs> you know. So, what did you come uh, up with? What, what would you uh, have done? Well, you know, I mean, I, I knew that 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 there would be help from the camera angles, you know, but, um, my main worry was really getting that last minute look at the silks and warming them up and making sure that I had all my horses down and names versus silks, um, calling, calling two triple crown, eventual triple crown winners, um, you know, would certainly be, um, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess right up there, with um with with the silver charm captain budget freehouse that three-way finish but um eventually about three minutes to post the rain let up a bit and i could finally look at the horses and uh you know and we could definitely i could definitely see the far turn which is a big relief because that's the point at which they're farthest away from you and then finally the justify year um, the the fog just rolled in and kept getting worse all day long. So I, I didn't have to worry about writing anything down to say anything because there was no way I could see the entire race pretty much. Um, and I just was just hoping that the camera angles would, would help and uh, that my eyes would be in the right place at the right time. And uh, I used, uh, our camera angles here at Pimlico from that was they were skillfully um, skillfully uh, patched out by uh, by the TV department and I used the NBC camera angles as well. Um, but basically, all you could see was a, a sheet of white on TV 
um, and Justify, of course, was wearing the white silks, which made it even more difficult. Um, and after the race is over, I realized, oh, wait a second. The NBC feed was really about 13 seconds behind our feed. So uh, luckily, I used a lot of our feed and then glanced over to the NBC feed um, to, to get as many bits and pieces of of the race as possible and translate it into a call. Um, certainly um, the most interesting situation I've been into in a major race. I mean, you know, after, after 40 years of calling, you're calling in rain, you're calling in snow, you're calling in thunderstorms, you're calling with a shortened post parade and they go right to the gate. You're calling horses with similar silks in big fields, but, um, that that was a time when uh, you really had to, you know, buckle down and concentrate. And luckily got luckily got through it with the help of the of the camera angles from uh, from our TV crew and from NBC. And you're talking about all the different weather types and in the snow, because of course in Maryland there's mm-hmm. racing all yeah. year round. So you would have indeed seen it all, but especially on such a big event you know your voice your guidance is what everyone looks to when nobody could Uh, see yeah uh you know yeah in all fairness really no one could see but um honestly i mean the the booth at pimlico well any booth but especially the booth at pimlico is really the best seat in the house to watch a race because i'm very very high up and um, on normal, you know, on, on a normal Preakness over the past years, there have been more and more tents and obstructions and things in the way. So I'll definitely go to camera angles to call races anyway, rather than um, than directly through binoculars, because it's really almost impossible to see. It's uh, very it's definitely impossible to see through uh, the, uh, you know, the tents and uh, and in the and the stage. Um, so a, a lot of, a lot of the Preakness Week calls were literally done off of television. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's the development yeah. of today's so, day and age. Yeah. So this year, I mean, this year with no crowd, I mean, I mean, I, I haven't been to Pimlico yet, but I would assume they didn't put the tents up just for effect. So, uh, in, in a way we'll have a more of a clear shot, um, uh, of all of the uh, of the angles and, and the action. Yeah, well, as this podcast comes out tomorrow, both of us will be back at Pimlico as of Thursday. So I last time mm. I was there, the tents weren't up, and that was a couple of weeks ago. So I dare say there's definitely not going to be as many or as much obstruction yeah. as you mentioned it would have been in prior years. Yeah, it's just, it's just something you have to deal with. I mean... The, the, in 30 years of calling, uh, very, you know, the, the Preakness has really changed. The atmosphere has changed. Uh, the setup has changed. I mean, uh, years ago, there weren't as many tents, but um, there were a lot of, in the, in the infield area, you would see people tossing footballs around. You'd call a race, and all of a sudden, you'd see, you know, uh, a big panda bear fly by or, you know, I mean, it is like a, you know, a, 
you know, uh, balloons, beach balls, things like that. And over the years, they've kind of banned, <laughs> they've banned certain, certain things because they, they, they got in the way or they just were, weren't, weren't safe. But it's, it's unbelievable. You, you know, the distractions that you, that you would see and you would have, um, in, in, in calling a race, especially around the, the far turn or two and a half furlongs out, which is obviously the most crucial point. That sounds like absolute madness. But as you are the longest standing Preakness caller, the voice of Maryland Racing, as I said before, whenever I speak with people about the Pimlico meet, they reiterate how it has a certain atmosphere, a vibe, and it's, you know, it's historic and special. What would be your take on that? Yeah, I mean... Uh... It's like opening day for the Orioles. Um, you know, um, Baltimore, you know, historically a, a blue collar town and people would take day off of work to come to the races for, for say, opening day. Um, the actual Preakness itself uh, is, um, a, I think, um, in a normal year with the concerts and even without, even before we had a major infield fest was always like a, a rite of passage, so to speak, for many of the college students around the area uh, to say I've been to the Preakness. I, you know, I partied at the Preakness. I was my friends with the Preakness. Uh, and and then there's the other side of the coin, too, of, of people, you know, in a throwback way uh, going to the track, you know, uh, to dress up to go to the races um, you know, it's their one outing every year that they can truly call uh, their, you know, their Baltimore racetrack experience. Um, what would be your favorite part of calling at Pimlico and just being at Pimlico? Um, well, personally, just I the fact that the stakes barn is very, very close to the press box elevator. Um, and I think a lot of the media that covers the race would say the same thing. All you have to do is take the elevator down from the press box, <clears throat> walk about 40 yards, and you're there. Um, there's, you know, there's the derby winner. There's the runner-up. Um, all of the horses, the stakes horses, are, are concentrated into a small area. So going around, walking around the barn area, uh, which was just a hop, skip, and a jump from the press box elevator in the morning, um, and watching the horses and meeting people and um, s seeing familiar names, um, faces um, that are you know giants of the industry and Hall of Famers and you know Dwayne Lucas and um, you know and 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 Bob Baffert, um, you know on a on a personal level. Sometimes seeing people from my home state of Louisiana who, you know, Tom Amos ran a horse up here a few years back. Um, you know, Brett Calhoun, who's more of a south, southern, uh, you know, Midwest kind of guy. Uh, you know, hopefully we'll be here, Mr. Big News. It's just the, the atmosphere in the morning to me. Uh, the sunrise tours, um, hopefully we'll be back next year. It, it, again, exposing uh, young people to um, to what horse racing is all about and showing them the other side of the game other than gambling. Um, there's just so there's so many elements to it. You know, all day I'm obviously up 
and isolated. Um, and luckily at the highest point of the building, um, so I can see, see all the action and take in, you know, every, every area of the track. I can see the grandstand apron. I can see the, the music in the infield. I can see the corporate village. Um, and, you know, and look down to the winner's circle. So it's, it's really a great spot to be in. But on a personal level, I think, um, getting there early in the morning before the races start, walking around for about an hour, an hour and a half is really, uh, to, to get an appreciation of, of what Preakness Week is all about. I know it won't be the same this year, but how do you think we can still make it fun for the next uh, week and a half? It's going to be. <laughs> um, well, I mean, uh, I, I think the fun part will, will be the racing, you know, um, you know, people talk, oh, you know, the Preakness, the Preakness, the Preakness, but you know, let's remember, you know, that the other stakes on the card and the fun part is going to be hopefully seeing the next star. Um, you know, I had the privilege of calling Kofifi, uh, horses like Matole, um, you know, the Patio Prado, Better Talk Now in the past, even Lure on the Turf. I mean, it's the 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 undercard races. Um, I really think are are often overlooked, and and I think that the fun will be provided by by the horses, and uh, hopefully we'll see a couple of emerging, you know, some emerging superstars. People forget like horses like a Sarava, <laughs> one one here. He won uh, the uh, the Sir Barton, and then went on later to to win the Belmont at a huge price. And his next race is an upset. So um, that that's going to be that's going to be the fun part to me is to to watch the the quality uh, the quality of the races from all the undercard stakes. Uh, which race which race do you like best? Um, I don't know. I can't really say that there's there's one, but there seems to be. At, at least once per year, a horse that three, four, five months down the line would um, would go ahead and go on to bigger and better things. And of course, there's always the stand of the older horses like Pimlico Special. Um, you, know, you know, Cigar won the Pimlico Special. Obviously, Pimlico Special has had its ups and downs, and hopefully, it's it's on its way. It's on its way back up. Um, as far as one particular race goes. I mean, I, I can't really name one that would say I, I can't wait to call this particular race, obviously, until we see the entries, you know. Yeah, well, there's plenty of noms. Love to see yeah. how the races actually shape up, because, of course, we have high class graded states action at Keeneland, at Belmont. And that makes it tricky, doesn't it, to see who will actually end up uh, making the trip over to Baltimore? Yeah, well, it's a different year, but... Uh... Uh, it, it's a different year, but, uh, you know, I, I think everyone is, you know, all tracks in the in the U.S. are in the same boat and worldwide really in the same boat. Um, so um, it, 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 it's certainly a year with an asterisk, but, you know, I, I think uh, it's, it's going to be a memorable one. Well, it certainly will be. It will be my first one, uh, my first Preakness. Yeah, so I'm we'll, very excited. Yeah, well, next, well, hopefully uh, in a few months. 
in a few months. It's hard to it's hard to believe. We can tell you in a few months. Come back and you can see what what the atmosphere is really like and what, what everyone's been talking about. But uh, uh, let's let's hope it let's hope it is the first Saturday in May. You'll see uh, you'll see all the action back and restored. I can't believe how close that actually is because everything has been moved for multiple months that we're now so much closer actually to next year's uh, triple crown trail again. <laughs> so it's it's a it's a strange one indeed. And before, yeah, we're, we're yeah yeah we're already talking about uh, the two year olds looking forward to next year already, right? We we're already we're already clocking a couple of two year olds in our mind that that are. Our candidates for the Triple Crown next year, right at this point. <laughs> well, we have to look forward, right? We're all dreaming that the world gets back to some form of normality and we can start attending the races with lots of fans and, and parties and events and everything that makes racing special, the whole fanfare that comes with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that uh, myself. But uh, in, in the meantime, I mean, I. I think I think racing in general is, uh, you know, where we the uh, the whole the industry overall has been pretty good job and keeping the game going and everyone's been cooperative um, in following the rules so that we can keep uh, racing. I wholeheartedly agree with you there. The Maryland mm -hmm. Jockey Club, as well as the Stronach Group, and of course all the other race courses and organizations have done a phenomenal job keeping us all safe, making sure we're adhering to the regulations and that we can continue putting on this show, which we have for the majority of the time throughout this pandemic. And now, last but not least, we were chatting in the parking lot at Laurel Park and you mentioned the slogan of Pimlico. It used to be something like Hi-Ho Pimlico. You have to tell me where that came from and, and how long that's been the slogan. Oh. I didn't know anything about that. Oh yeah, that, well, it was a marketing campaign. There was actually a jingle uh, of which I don't know all the words, except that it was "Hi, oh Pimlico" or something that effect. I'm a terrible singer, but uh, I, I, you know what? I, I found something about that the other night. I'll have to. Um, I'm going to send it to you on a, on a, on a separate link. I, I actually found a commercial with a smidgen of that jingle in there. Uh, those those that have been here for longer than I have can fill you in uh, on on that jingle, which was, I think, the genesis may have been the in the 80s, uh, which is about 10 years before I arrived in Maryland. But uh, it's, that's a whole nother, um, you know, could be a whole nother podcast, the marketing of... <laughs> The marketing of Maryland racing. <laughs> well, Dave, you know? I just made, I just asked you this because I wanted to hear you sing that again. So, Dave, thank you so much oh, for your yeah. time. It's been so wonderful. Well, now, yeah, now that now that everyone's tuned out of the podcast after my singing, I want to hopefully thank them for listening up to that point. Right. <laughs> it's been so much fun chatting with you and just you know hearing about the history and, and yeah. everything that's happened and just some of the highlights so yeah thank you dave and uh, see you at the track i'll see you there Liam. i will see him later at the track indeed or at least hear him that's for certain my next guest philip antonacci was one of the other 11 trainees i got the pleasure of traveling the world with for two years as part of the godolphin flying start program Safe to say we are all very close friends and have really enjoyed 
you know, spending all this time together. And hence, I know all their stories, but I wanted him to share his racing story, which is slightly different with his family deeply entrenched in the standard bread side of racing as well. Phil, I couldn't let you set up shop training without me grilling you a little on my podcast. Care to start with elaborating upon your involvement in the industry from a young age? I grew up around, my brother was a standard bread trainer uh, for a family farm, so I kind of always grew up working under him and, and being in a training stable. And uh, prior to the flying start, I spent a bit of time with Wesley Ward uh, up in Saratoga and Keeneland, and then down in Australia with Gay Waterhouse. So I kind of always had that, that training bud, bug and always kind of been around trainers and found it very fascinating. And as you know, once you, once you get something like that, <laughs> you, there's really no getting rid of it, right? You always have to somehow go to training. So, you know, it was, this opportunity came about and, um, it was a little less daunting than going out on your own, just, just starting off. Um, so, you know, it just seemed like a good opportunity and something I'd always been, you know, if I never did it, I would always regret it. So I uh, just, just took a shot at it and, and going to give it a go. Okay, so how did that opportunity come about? Because for those <clears throat> listeners that don't know, your family operates Lindy Farms, a leading racing and breeding operation for standard breads. Although in recent years, you guys have also dabbled into the thoroughbred industry with quite a little bit of success. Yeah, yeah. so kind of give a little bit of background on, on the whole family and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I started... Family racing operation started in 1968 in Long Island, and then uh, the family moved to Connecticut, and we established a breeding and, and racing facility up there. Um, so, like I said, my brother was a trainer for the farm, and uh, Jimmy Tactor had we were one of Jimmy Tactor's first clients in 1980, probably um, right when he came over from Sweden. And, and my grandfather had a, had a very good connection with him, and my father, and and uh, we made great family friends. Uh, you know, for, for all these years. And <clears throat> as you know, he, he had more success than anybody in, in the standard bread world. Um, you know, he's, he's equivalent of D Wayne Lucas or, you know, people of that stature, Aiden O'Brien. And, you know, he, I think he won 34 breeders crowns, which is equivalent of, of the Breeders cups. He's won, uh, I think it was six straight Hamiltonian Oaks and he won four Hamiltonians, uh, including one as a driver. So he was just, he's, a uh, you know, he's got all the accolades and he was a great family friend and, you know, someone who over the last couple of years, he retired two years ago and kind of handed his stable over to his assistant trainer, um, Per Anglum and his daughter, Nancy Tactor, who was also assistant for him. And so he kind of took a step back and wanted to focus more on, on life and family and, and having some free time. But as you know, with people like that, they can really never get too far away. You know, courses are part of your life and they never go away. So He's been kind of serving as more of like an advisor, consultant role for, for our our private racing stable and for uh, for his daughter and and for his assistant trainer, and you know it's something that he spent this last winter in Florida. Um, you know we had been to Palm Meadows a few times, been to Payson Park, and and he always I could always tell that he had a, he had an interest in it, and uh, he's someone that's always looking for a next challenge and. And uh, for someone to be as successful as that and always want to change and always do that stuff is really unique. And, uh, and so, you know, he kind of said to me, he said, well, Philip, what, what do you want to do? I said, well, you know, I've, I've always wanted to train, but, you know, it's, it's a bit of a daunting task to just, you know, 
come out of flying start and just start training, right? So, and he said, well, what if what if we establish a stable? And I said, that'd be great. And you you run the stable, right? I'll, I'll handle it. So myself, I handle everything, day to day stable stuff, employees, owners, and stuff like that. And he'll serve as like an advisor, consultant role, um, come in a few times a week, go over the horses, and and uh, so it, you know, it satisfies his his need for to try something new in, in the rubber game and also provides me a little bit of backing and a little bit of name recognition to get out there starting off. Yeah. And you started after the flying start, you ended up going into the bloodstock industry, starting out with renowned standard bread agent, David Reed as a sales and bloodstock executive on the thoroughbred side. How has that gone thus far? Yeah, no, like Dave, Dave is one of the best people you could ever, ever work for. Uh, his experience in both industries is, is remarkable. Um, like I said, I think there's only there's only one group or organization that sold more horses than Dave Reed, and it's TaylorMade. So that's uh, you know put them in. No matter what how, what type of horses you're selling, if you start selling thirty two thousand horses like Dave has, you, you'll get a lot of experience off him. And he's got a great eye and, and a great way with clients, and he's always he's always very honest and, and loyal and. Uh, so I've learned a lot of great things off him and going to actually stay in the same position I am right now while training. So it's going to be more of like a, a sales recruitment and private bloodstock and, and some yearling selection stuff as well. So going to continue that relationship. And uh, no, it's been great and look forward to building it more. I was going to say, is he going to miss you, but you're going to try and stay on? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, Dave. Dave's my right-hand man, so, uh, you know, like yearling selection stuff, if I'm not able to be at sales, Dave's the one that, he's got a great eye, and he's got great relationships, and he knows the sales process in and out, so he's uh, he'll still be very much part of the team. In terms of the standard bread industry now, you were so kind throughout the flying start to take me and our fellow trainees to one of the locations of Lindy Farms and even got the pleasure to drive uh, on the sulkies. And, but you, you know, you, that's something that you've done throughout your childhood and you're, you know, you're quite good at it, but how does it compare to thoroughbreds? What are the differences? Yeah. So uh, like, I guess the overall difference is, uh, it's, you know, the thoroughbred horses is, is a lot more fragile, uh, but they're a lot more natural in the sense that, you know, horses, Horses have been galloping for thousands of years, right? It's, it's a natural instinct them for to gallop. Versus trotting and pacing is, is almost a learned gait or a bred into gait. So, you know, the trotter and pacer, they're evolving every year as the breeding gets better and they're going faster. Um, and, you know, the thoroughbred, it, it, it's natural. They've been going the same speed. Secretariat's record still is Secretariat's record, right? So, uh, I, you know, they're, they're very much, you know, they're both race horses, but thoroughbreds, obviously, you can't put as much work into them. As you can't standard bread, standard breads race nearly every 10 days, I would say on average, rather than, you know, six weeks to a month of the thoroughbreds race. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that overall, you know, they're both athletes. Um, it just, it's just a matter of managing them, managing soundness issues, uh, knowing how far you can push them, and, um, and just kind of managing their mental fortitude, too. You know, standard breads are pretty laid back, chilled out horses. Uh, you don't see too many wound up and, and they're, uh, they're pretty easy going and, you know, most thoroughbreds pretty easy going too, but you know, you'll, you'll have a hothead one once in a while. So it's just managing their mental fortitude as well. So, you know, there's a lot of differences, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we tend to overcomplicate things. It's training racehorses. So 
you know, once if you can get into their head and keep them sound, keep them happy and keep them eating, you can, uh, you can do well in, in both industries. What is it that made you want to train thoroughbreds and not go into the standard bread side of things? Yeah, so you know, our standard bread operations uh, at a good spot right now. We have uh, we have a trainer called Domenico Cacciare. He's he's running the stable and he's doing a good job. And uh, you know, I always love standard breads and, and thoroughbreds as well. But thoroughbred industry is just a bit more uh, opportunity for for global for kind of a global marketplace and and more racing opportunities and uh you know it's just kind of fell in love with it and, and want to tackle it. and it's something that you know myself and my family don't really have a big footprint in the industry so it was uh it was kind of a fresh start and something cool to do where will you be starting out at where, where will you be based and have you been able to secure a few horses yet to fill your stable and know that you're at the keeneland sales uh, for the last couple of days uh, have you found anything nice yeah, so uh, so we based at Payson Park. Uh, Mr. Brandt was was kind enough to, to give us fifteen stalls down there. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll be starting off probably you know beginning of December, um, and kind of ideally would want eight to ten babies, a couple older horses, and a few two year olds to turn three. Uh, you know, we, we were lucky enough to we bought five fillies down here. Uh, you know, one at Phasic Tipton. And then, uh, and then four at Keeneland. And you're looking to add a few more colts here. I'm going to go back to the sale later today. It's looking at a few and uh, bringing over an older horse from Europe and going to try to buy a couple race fillies, something like that. So like a good little mix. And uh, and so, yeah, so give it a give it go. So your, your family is active in the Florida region, although – as you mentioned, the main location of Lindy Farms is in Connecticut, which is also where you're from. How come you're starting out on the Florida racing scene instead of in New York? Yeah, so this winter, kind of, you know, Payson, we're, we're going to be based at Payson. We'll, we'll race a bit at Gulfstream, but during the summer, we'll look to head north. We'll either go to Monmouth Park or go to the Naira Circuit. Um, you know, so we're very much Northeastern people, and, and Jimmy's from Jersey, so... Uh, we'll be just be spending the winter down in Florida. We won't be based down there all year round. Um, just kind of giving the babies a good a good background down there, and then coming up north. Okay, and talking a little bit about the Godolphin Flying Start, which is the program that we've done together. Uh, what were sort of your takeaways from that, and do you miss it? Yeah, no, of course I miss it. Like, you know, I, I think you get spoiled when you're on the course. You don't realize how lucky you are to first be experiencing all the all the you know, the experiences that you get with that Godolphin gives you, you know, you get to go into the best yards in the world, no questions asked, right? And you get to ask a million questions. So it's kind of, you never get that opportunity in your life again. You go, get to go to Charlie Applebee's, you get to go to wherever, every stable in the world and, and just being open, you know, everybody's open to you and they're very welcoming and it's something you probably take for granted on the course. So yeah, you know, miss that aspect and, and, uh, you know, you make great friends and, and great experiences um and you know for, for me for going into this uh training venture it was I, you know I, I got to spend i did my three externships i did one with todd pletcher at, at belmont right so one of the leading traders in america you get to go work for and who's just far superior in organizational skills and, and ability to run a stable and then i got to go spend time with mark johnson who's all-time leading most trainer in england who's just a complete genius you know, he, he tries new stuff. He, he races horses a lot. He's just, 
he's an incredible guy to be around. And then, uh, you know, spent time in Australia and spent time with Boomer Bloodstock and, and Boomer knows a lot of trainers well and, and you know, has a, a variety of different trainers and then I've used all different techniques. So, you know, it, experiences like that, that, you know, if you, if you know kind of what you want to do further down the line in life, you kind of, Flying Star can tailor any experience for you. So I was really, really grateful for the opportunity and really grateful to Sheikh Mohammed and, and Clota Kavanaugh. And, uh, and I think, you know, I, I think I speak for the whole class, right, Naomi, that we all miss it, right? Yeah, it's it's weird. You you come out of it and all of a sudden you realize that, oh dear, you actually have to carve a career path out for yourself and, you know, really get to work and all those, you know, amazing visits and the time spent abroad, you know, you, you can do that, but obviously not without, you know, we have the support of, as you mentioned, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed behind us and, you know, the doors just open, which is extraordinary and it's it's an incredible program i actually got the chance to speak with jason beam about it too and yeah i do also miss the other trainees because i mean i'm in the united states and you're in the united states and uh, Mackenzie is here as well but the rest they're all across the globe yeah and like we all we all learn off each other and it was um you know we all came from different experiences and able to learn about different cultures and and you know your experience of certain externships and what, what these people did versus what other people did and it was uh no, it was it was a great two years, and obviously recommend it to any any young person in the industry that wants to make a career of this. And what about the discussions? We used to always go head to head, like all of us. Everyone, you know, had strong opinions, and we would be, you know, what would we do in that position, or what do we think we need to change about the racing industry? Do you miss any of that? Oh yeah, of course. You, you know me. I like to <laughs> I like to get the room going and and uh, to stir the pot a little bit. So yeah, I always enjoyed the. Uh, the debates that that we had yeah you you were quite good at them what what do you miss the most which phase was your favorite um I'm trying to think what phase was my favorite you know i i think i think uh i think ireland was great because you know i'm i'm a bit of a sucker for european racing you know i love love the pedigrees i love the style of racing you know i'm i'm probably you not know, you get crucified for saying it's in america but more of a more of a turf fan than a dirt fan <laughs> But, uh, it, you know, it's just, it's, it's very, it's such, horse is such a part of the culture in Ireland that everywhere you go, every pub, every town, it's, uh, as, as a bookmaker and it's just, it's, you know, it's old fashioned. It's not, you know, you never really don't see stuff like that anymore. So I really enjoyed Ireland and you got to know the racing circuit really well and all the yards are in the countryside and it was just really, it's like going back in time. So I, I really, I really enjoyed that. And England was great too, like the sales and you know, the full sales and mare sales, like the, that year when Marsha sold for, for $6 million, that was kind of one of the highlights of it. That, you know, the, it just, I'm a sales junkie too, so and any sale around the world is uh, is fun for me. So, yeah, those two phases were probably the best. But, you know, the great thing about it is that they were all different and they are all unique. And, like, the experience in Dubai that, you know, it was, it was surreal, really. Like, you spend three months in, in Dubai and, uh, you know, it just feels like another world. And you the experience that we had over there, I don't think many people have. So it was, uh, it was unique and, and one that you'd never forget. Oh, absolutely. Phil, did you, you mentioned Newmarket in the sales. Had you been, have you, or had you been at the time to Newmarket before? Or was that your first time? That was my first time in Newmarket. Yeah. Yep. Well, and also, you know, home of horse racing in, in Europe. Uh, you were saying you're a bit of sucker for the sales, but for history too? Oh yeah, for sure. Like 
it's uh, it, like those those towns like that in the world, like you know Saratoga, uh, Newmarket, uh, even Scone, like you know those those real horse centric towns that you know horse racing was founded around those regions. It's it's uh, you know if you're into racing, you have a kind of a gravitational force to those places, and uh, you know going to see all all the old yards and Henry Cecil's old yard and and uh, you know going to the palace house there and, and seeing the museum and and going to jockey club rooms which is which is really cool and just I, I was a history major in college so it was all kind of it was all kind of right up my alley so I really enjoyed it and anybody that can get there that's a fan of history should and horse racing it's, it's the perfect place absolutely and for those listeners that don't know scone is in australia it's about how, how far was it from sydney driving at least four hours right yeah so <laughs> it was four sometimes it felt like eight because <laughs> yeah, we used to make the trip up every weekend to watch the races in sydney the saturday card yeah yeah it was uh it, it was worth it though oh absolutely absolutely phil thank you so much and we'll be very much looking forward to seeing your first runners. Thanks, I appreciate it. And uh, no, thanks. Uh, if anybody ever wants to get in touch with me, please get in touch with me. Yeah, how can they get in touch with you, Phil? Uh, email at, email at philip at lindyfarms.com or uh, reach out to Naomi. She'll have my number. <laughs> <laughs> very true, very true. Now, best of luck, Phil. I, re- I really uh, hope it all takes off uh, quickly. Thanks, Naomi. And, and well done with the podcast. Like, I was listening to a few episodes here, so... You know, you're getting, getting great guests and you're uh, definitely a go-getter, so keep it up. You heard it, guys. If you are looking for a young, bright and ambitious trainer, Phil is your man. Our next guest joined me off the back of a third Queen's Plate win. And not just any win, she trained the runner-up too. Mighty Heart paid $28.50 for the win and the runner-up, Belichick, jumped off at a huge price too. Both are trained by none other than Canadian Hall of Famer Josie Carroll. Similar to the main bulk of major races this year, the Queen's Plate was pushed back from its normal end June date to mid-September. Josie, what was that like for your stable? You know, for, as far as the Queen's Plate go, it actually benefited me. Um, the horse that finished second, Belichick, he was... a somewhat of a late bloomer and he would not have been ready for the uh, for the earlier race oh wow that's quite i guess that's a uh, fortunate a bit of fortune in an unfortunate situation sure there's 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 always positives well i'd love to look back at this year's queen's plate which was a phenomenal result you train the winner and the second place getter she just mentioned belichick and mighty heart to win and mighty heart went straight to the lead and held off everyone on the turn before winning by about eight lanes. What was going through your mind when he was clearing away like he did? Uh, you know, I, I expected I expected a really good race from this horse. And uh, the strategy when we were selecting post positions, I knew he had a lot of tactical speed. So I took it outside, proposed towards the outside um, with what was left of our selection. Um, you know, thinking that he could break sharply and then, you know, sort of drop over and, and be in a nice position, not necessarily on the lead, but he, he did find himself there. I had a little concern when they, they were going a little bit quick the, the first quarter, but then the horse stabilized. Um, you know, they went to three quarters in 12. Um, 
And I certainly didn't expect him to sprint home the way he did. It seems like when he was running at Woodbine here over the summer that he really started coming into his own because he only started racing as a three-year-old, right? What what has his development been like? You know, he... um, He's taken a little. He's taken a little bit of work. Um, he he had to do a lot of adapting with with the one eye with the with the racing. Um, training training was pretty simple, but when he got in a field of horses or a group of horses and and uh, he got dirt or Polly hitting him, it um, it spooked him initially. When we ran him at the fairgrounds, he his first two races he actually ran almost to the outside fence before the rider pulled him back in but both times once he got his confidence he finished strongly in the race so um you know he wasn't a horse that was just intimidated and gave up he was a horse that just had to learn yeah because that's obviously something that probably a lot of people wonder about how does that affect a horse and how can you help him with training or, or if you can even help them at all with it aside from you know them getting the experience we definitely breathed him in behind I would have you know two horses breathe in front of him and tuck him in behind there and, and let him take some let him take some kick back in his face uh and then have him swing out and kick around them so we did that two three works we did that and you know by the third work he was uh very content to sit in there and then just exploded around him he, he's got to enjoy it um we also did cover up the the socket on the blind side with a um, a bubble, uh, a hood. Uh, it's a fairly sensitive area, and I think it, it startled him when when it would get hit. So putting that on, I think, did make a significant difference. Because, mind you, if you are happy to explain, was he born with this, or how? You know, this is quite rare. Although we did see, I think, Finnick de Fis, who also had it, had it, and he was going to run at a Derby. He was two weeks old out in the, and he came in from the paddock that way, so he. He either got hit or kicked or, or banged it on something. Um, so really, he's been that way his whole life. So he, he doesn't know that he's supposed to see things differently, which I think is an asset as opposed to horses that lose their eye later in life. Well, I can imagine. I've actually, I've been an exercise rider, but I've never got the chance to work with any horses that don't have full eyesight. So I was always wondering, you know, how that affects them. It, you know, does he tilt his head or is that not the case? He does tilt his head. He tilts his head a little bit. Um, he definitely does have a little tilt to it. Not a lot, but he does, he does cock his head. Um, it's funny. We were talking today at, at this time last year. He wouldn't walk on the wash bay from his, for his bath. We used to have to back him on because he found the, uh, the bath mat too frightening to walk on. So he's come a long, long way. He definitely has indeed. I mean, gosh, that was such a strong performance. And you also got second with Belichick. Did you imagine you were going to run 1-2 in this race? No, no, not at all. And uh, certainly I had high expectations for our filly who went off favorite. And, uh, you know, she had a a troubled trip. Um, Belichick has been a very promising horse from the start. He, He just came to me this winter. Um, took a, quite a long time to come around. He's a he's a very big, strong horse. Um, he was very mentally Im- immature his first couple of starts and really not paying attention. But as he's pulling it together, I think I think he might turn into quite a significant horse. Because I was looking back at some some of his form, and I think he ended up going off at 
God, at, at least over $40, like a very, very big price there. So I guess the, the, the public didn't see him do it. But then when he started to weave through, it just kind of all came together. Is that is that sort of his style, normally speaking, that he just comes from a little bit more off the pace? Well, he's only had, that's only his third start. Um, and his first two starts, he was just very green. So we weren't quite, quite sure what he was going to do. I knew he wouldn't, he wasn't going to break sharply. So I took an inside post to give him, you know, the shorter way around uh, and just hope he could get himself clear of, clear of the pack. Yeah. Well, what is the procedure normally like with the post positions for the Queen's Plate? Uh, for, the, for the Queen's Plate, you are, you are given a number. Uh, they draw numbers and then you pick your post in the order that you're given your number. Yeah, I, I find that incredibly interesting because I obviously listening to you, the strategy in terms of where do you want to place your horse? Because it's quite unique. It's not frequent, like, you know, for that race, but for any other big races, that is not the case at all. Do you think it's a benefit? Um, I don't I don't know. It's um, it's, it's just something different. I mean, for, for Mighty Heart, I only had three selections left, the one, the 13, or the 14. So, you know, you... you it's it's still a it's still a draw just the, the way a draw for post positions is well indeed if you're at the end of it it's not much of a choice left but if you do have a choice it's uh, always nice to at least try and, and help your horses a little bit and unfortunately i've never had the chance to go to woodbine but i know that you're based there and i've seen many coverages of the coverage of the event and, and a lot of videos and it looks like a quite a wonderful occasion normally but of course this year was a little bit different, but could you tell me a little bit about the weight that this race and the racing festival normally carries around Canada? This is this is our historic race, and I, I mean, um, growing up with a passion for horses, this was something you you waited for and watched every year. So um, just to participate was, um, you know, wonderful when I when I first began training horses, and then. To you know, to to win this race, um, it, it it means a lot. It, it means a lot, um, you know, as a, a Canadian racing. Oh, it's still hope to one day attend because, well, you mentioned winning that race. You won in two thousand and six with champion Eden Wolf, and then again in two thousand eleven with another champion in Inglorious. Uh, you finished second last year. I mean, I'm just rolling off all the success that you've had here, but I know that this is probably a question that you get all the time and you're probably completely sick <laughs> of talking about it but I still wanted to you know briefly discuss it you know in 2006 you were the first female to win the queen's plate did that mean something to you or was it more like well at least they can't hold that against me anymore going into the race that a female's never won it do you know I, I think for some reason um it's Maybe been a little easier for for women in Canada. I I, I don't know, but um, I think it's more important that we get horses on merit, not um, on gender. And winning winning that race, uh, well, I'm sure it, it's important and 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 it means something to me to be the first woman. Um, but more importantly, as a young trainer uh, coming up at that time. Um, you know, you were just trying, you were, you were trying to make your mark and you weren't trying to make your mark as a woman. You were trying to make your mark as a trainer. It's a wonderful achievement, regardless of someone's gender. The Queen's Plate is a part of the Canadian Triple Crown. The next leg being the Prince of Wales 
on September 29th. Will be will Mighty Heart be headed there? You know, we're 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 going to consider it, but this year with the COVID, they've compressed these races pretty closely, and it's it's really coming back in 17 days off of a I guess what you'd call a breakthrough effort. Um, so it's not a big period of time, and then to come back in three weeks and go the mile and a half on the grass, which is a distance I think he's going to absolutely love. So, you know, I'll certainly talk it over with Mr. Cortez and and, and we'll, you know, see what we decide to do. I think the last horse to sweep the whole series was in 2003, but that was, as you mentioned, under very different circumstances. Uh, very curious to see where he'll end up. And what would be the plans with Belichick? Uh, Belichick is going to skip that race. Belichick will... will uh, probably go straight to the third leg. You know, at this point, uh, that's what we're looking at. I think um, basically I wanted to just ask you about this whole race and the experience because coming from sort of a USA point of view, I know how important it is, but I've never, you know, been able to get sort of insight into it. So Josie, thank you so much. Uh, it's been really lovely to chat to you. I don't want to keep you too long because I can imagine you're very busy, but hopefully one day I get the chance to, to come up and at least introduce myself to you. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. And you you really should come up. It's really, uh, it, it really is a great spectacle, um, particularly, you know, when, when royalty come over for it, it makes it quite special. Yeah, and I've, I've just seen so many pictures and videos. It's, you know, it's an absolutely beautiful course. I just really want to experience it for myself and hopefully on a day that would, you know, would be like a normal day again with all the fanfare and the people dressing up and, you know, the whole spectacle. Yeah, you know, it, it it showcases our racetrack. I think people don't really appreciate what we what we have here with the the inner turf and the uh, then the mile track and then the mile and a half turf on the outside. It, it's really quite spectacular. It definitely is on my bucket list, and hopefully, at some point, life will resume again and we are free to travel and I can cross the border and right? come back. <laughs> I know it's 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 a crazy year. It's a crazy year. Yeah, how does that work for you really quickly before before I let you go? How does that work if you want to run horses in the United States, States at present? Are there any restrictions or is that still possible? There, there are. At the moment, uh, what we're doing and, and coming this way also, um, basically because we can't send any of our, our people with the horses, we can't, you know, we can't send our groups or our riders. Uh, or go ourselves otherwise we have to quarantine for 14 days when we come back so what we're doing is you know we're sending them to uh, you know trainers who are our friends that will that will handle them and then in return up here we're taking their horses in do you have any horses that are crossing the border anytime soon or already in the united states i don't have any right at the moment so uh, i haven't i haven't had that challenge yet well, I'm sure they would love to have you back again here because I know that you've worked for a fair bit of time in the United States as well. But Josie, thank you so much again. And uh, like I said, I hope our paths will cross uh, in the near future. Thank you. A variety of guests this week made for a versatile show. And I couldn't be more grateful to Dave Rodman, Philip Antonacci and Josie Carroll for taking the time to have a sit down with me. 
As always, massive thanks as well to the In The Money Media team who do an incredible job producing quality and fun content for everyone to listen to every single day. Now, you guys know the drill, you know the names, Peter Thomas Fornatel, Jonathan Kinchin, Drew Coatney, and of course the standalone podcast, Nick Lux Daily News Digest, Spencer's Redboard Rewind, and Matt Bernier's Weekly Recap. Excuse me to anyone who I've forgotten. Tune in to all of them, all so different, and they will make sure you do not miss out on a thing. On that note, who else is looking forward to the 145th Preakness? I can't wait. It will be my first year covering and attending. So do all tune in to the Draw Show on Monday at noon, hosted by Acacia and I for the Maryland Jockey Club. And of course, tune in to all the action via the Pimlico Live simulcast stream. It's an ever-changing field of commissioning horses in the lineup. So for the latest, go to my Twitter, at Naomi Tucker, where I've been regularly posting updated lists. Tune in next week to get your inside info on everything from the Preakness to the Black Eyed Susan and all the other top-class stakes races on the undercut. See you then. 